Hello, my darling true crime angels and friends. My name's Trisha Griffith, the very proud owner of websleuths.com, the absolute best true crime discussion forum in the universe, if you ask me, and I know you did. Okay, here's the deal. You gotta go back a little bit. Remember when you were, say, 15 years old? Tough age, right? Everybody had it tough. In fact, at 15, I was a complete mess of a human being. But you gotta imagine this, my friends. Imagine you find out your birth mother was not only murdered by a serial killer, but the killer adopted you out to his brother and his wife. Serial killer's brother and wife know nothing about the story behind the baby they were adopting. Made the adoption, in fact, the killer made the adoption seem so legitimate that he charged his brother five grand for the adoption fee. You find out at 15, by listening in on a phone call your parents received, telling them about you, telling them that the baby you adopted, the mother was killed by your brother, and he stole the baby. At 15 years old, that's what happened to Heather Robinson. When she picked up the phone at the same time her parents did when it rang, that's how Heather found out. Her mother was murdered by a serial killer. She was stolen as a little baby and adopted out. Well, you know, you think of your teenage angst, my teenage angst, nothing compared to this. But you'll be glad to know that Heather Robinson is a very strong woman now and is determined to find out where her mother is because the, the disgusting, awful monster of a serial killer won't say where he buried her mother, Lisa. Heather Robinson joins us now on Web Sleuths Radio Podcast. Heather, thank you for taking the time out to be with us today and to, to talk about your life. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about Lisa. Well, thank you. And let's, let's, let's jump ahead to the present day. Present day, you have finally, not finally, but you have made the decision to come out because these murders, uh, the serial killer murders and your mother's murder happened in the 80s. And I know you've been wanting to to come out with your case and your story for a little while now, but you did. You were on ABC's 2020. Fascinating, fascinating uh, viewing. If you, if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sure you can get it online. But how are you doing now? You have set up uh, uh, the, the, a project in memory of your mom, Tell us about that, and tell us what's going on in your life now, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. Right now, the main focus has just been the Facebook page. Through there, I've had multiple victims and witnesses through John's crimes reach out and speak to me. I've had quite a few people who aren't tied to the case that have reached out with their stories, just appreciating hearing mine and how it's helped them get through. We were originally looking at making a podcast, but with everything going on, we kind of put that on the back burner. Between learning everything that I can about Lisa through biological family I'm talking to, other people, I just didn't have the time and energy to go into doing a podcast. But right now is just kind of taking all the information we have seeing if there's anything we can do with it, and then transferring it all back to detectives that are currently investigating the letters that we found. 
about a month or two ago. And we're going to talk about those letters in just a moment. But Lisa is your mother, and your webpage is called, or your, excuse me, your Facebook page is called what? The Lisa Stacy Effect. Okay, Lisa Stacy Effect. I would encourage everybody. Can you spell that, the last name, please? S-T-A-C-I. Perfect. Lisa Stacy Effect. And that is where you can go to find out more. And believe me, you'll want to know a lot more after uh, this podcast. So keep that in mind. Okay, Heather, we're going to go back to the beginning. Tell us how your mother met up with serial killer who is now on death row, John Robinson. By 1984, 1985, Lisa was a single mom. She was going through a very unstable relationship with my biological father. Within the time of her ending up meeting John, she was couch surfing, living in her car. Her husband was stationed uh, about two states away over in Illinois and Chicago. Um, From my understanding of what I had learned, he had the choice between military time or jail time for drug possession charges. So he took the military time. So as far as I know, By the time she met John, she was completely estranged from my father, my biological father. How did they meet? Did he contact her or did she contact him and why? I I believe John had found her. The main purpose of John reaching out to her was at that time, he had started over the last year before even meeting Lisa, creating an outreach program dedicated to helping single moms, unwed moms, those who were struggling and needed some type of assistance. Lisa at that time was doing everything she could to get on her feet, but nothing was working. So by the time she met him, she was offered the opportunity of job placement, housing, everything you could ever dream of if you were displaced and had a child. And this is how John met a lot of his victims. He also met these women through uh, uh, BDSNM, I think is what it's called, uh, um, some very sexual websites, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But so she she goes to John Robinson. He tells her to come to Oklahoma, correct? I don't know if it was Oklahoma. There was always a different place that was offered for them to stay. For her, she was living in Kansas City, Missouri, he had taken her over to Kansas, where the Roadway Inn Motel was, where she was staying, and that was the last time seen. I don't remember if it was she was going to be promised house placement in Chicago or if it was in Colorado, but usually his MO was offering some type of job placement or travel, which would be outside of the vicinity of where he was staying. Okay, so here's what we know. She was staying at that roadway in. She had come to John Robinson with the promise of, like you said, everything a displaced single mother could want in her life. So she thought she had met an angel when in reality she had met Satan himself. And we know she was at that roadway, and she made a final call, I believe, to her mother, your grandmother. What was that call about? There was one final call to her mother-in-law, actually. She had been staying at her sister-in-law's, my biological father's family, where um, it was a horrible snowstorm. John got a hold of her, picked her up. It was the last time her sister-in-law saw her. I believe it was within that evening she called her mother-in-law 
frantic, saying that she was told that people were trying to take her baby, that she was informed that that family of in-laws were going to take custody, and she wouldn't be able to raise me. She then said within the phone call that they are trying to make me sign blank papers. Her mother-in-law told her, don't sign nothing, don't sign it. The last thing she said was, they're coming, or they here they are. And that was the last time anyone ever heard from Lisa. And then this uh, piece of paper showed up with her signature with a typewritten note. And what did that say? I believe the original typewritten note that was going around at that time was some type of a story that she had met another man and had left with him but did not want anyone to know. So this whole elaborate story of she was off living this new life with this man but wanted something set up for me. Okay, got it. Now, so in other words, she in the letter it indicated that she left the baby. Was that the idea? I believe so, or if I'm incorrect, it may have also, it, that letter may have stated that I was with. When it came to the narration of what story was tied to Lisa and me, there's at least five of them. That's why I kind of get confused. But I do know at that time, I he was telling everyone Lisa had gone with with a man and that they were traveling and she was happy with them. Then the story evolved into different things. Got it. What's so, I guess, scary and creepy to me is is the likelihood that you witnessed your mother's murder. Because it's very likely that John Robinson showed up, she said they're here, and walked in, killed her, and you were how old? I was about four months. Four months, and you probably saw it all. You have to wonder, go into uh, psychology here, is that vision buried deep in your psyche? It might be. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know if I witnessed her murder, but whatever transpired between her and them, I believe, imprinted on me. I think it has a lot to do with why I am so driven and drawn to finding my mother, especially if I was taken from her. There'd always be kind of that longing to return back to that maternal feeling, especially having it taken away. Of course. And let's let's jump ahead now. John Robinson's brother, and by the way, John Robinson literally was a Boy Scout. He sang for the Queen of England when he was a Boy Scout, and yet he had been arrested and I, I think found guilty of, of several different crimes of embezzling and just horrible, uh, just I don't know, nasty things. Is is that your understanding? He has been a he was a prior criminal from the seventies to nineties. Yeah, that wasn't disclosed until after he was arrested. But from my understanding, prior to the murders in the 80s, most of his crimes were white-collar, easy-to-kind-of-pay-off-and-get-rid-of type of crimes. It's why you could see him have such a long rap sheet, but nothing really stick and tie. He was always able to talk his way out of it and then promise the court, well, I can pay that back. I wasn't trying to steal the money type of scenarios. And it worked for him. And he was a pillar of the community. He had embezzled, stolen, he was fraudulent, all of that. But he was a a pillar of the community. They loved him, right? Yes. It's very scary. So 
John Robinson's older brother, who's quite a bit older, your your father, your adopted father. Actually, my adopted father is the baby. Oh, I'm sorry, it's flip-flopped, okay. So your adopted father is the baby. John Robinson is quite a bit older than he is. Over a decade older. And uh, your father, yeah, so he was pretty much out of the house when uh, your your baby, uh, your father was born. That's correct. I've always wondered how your father is a wonderful, loving, honest, caring man, and then his blood brother is just the opposite, and I always think, okay, they were raised in the same household, what happened? But actually, they weren't raised at the same time together, so who knows what happened? But anyway, so this guy, John Robinson, knows that his little brother and wife are looking for a baby they've been trying to adopt for a long time. He calls them and tells them he has a baby. What Do you know what story he gave them as to how he was able to find a four-month-old girl? When the phone call came that they he found me, it was kind of a delightful surprise with a very sad story attached. The story at that time was that my mother had committed suicide, I believe, in a shelter or a facility. I can't recall where he said, but it was that she committed suicide and that if they were still interested in adopting, they needed to go ahead and proceed with the paperwork and go on with it, or I was going to become a ward of the state since there was no biological father in the picture and my mother was dead. So you are adopted by John Robinson's little brother and his wife. Uh, loving family. I know you're very close to your father, and you're actually close to your father's family, which includes John Robinson's children. Again, we'll hopefully have time to get into that as well. But you grow up, you have, you know, the typical childhood that most of of, of us had, a a loving family. Uh, Of course, there were problems. Getting to be a teenager, you become a teenager, and you have other problems, just like we all did, But then that night, that phone call came in, and your life changed forever. Tell us about that phone call, and I hope it's not too awful for you to relive it. I don't want to cause you any issues because I know you are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and my God, who wouldn't? But as best you can, tell us about that night. There was nothing really abnormal about that night. It was a bit later in the evening, I want to say around... Almost 10.30 p.m. is what I had written in my diary. My parents were already in bed going to sleep. My dad had work the next day. I happened to be up on my computer in the family room waiting for my friend to call. That's why we got the phone so fast, because back then you weren't supposed to get phone calls after 9 p.m. So I was waiting till I could get that call so it wouldn't wake my parents up. Happened to pick it up right when it rings and gets my friend before I could say anything. It was a family member of John's out in the Kansas City area calling to inform my dad that John was arrested. He was tied to a connection of some murder. And I believe the wording was something around the lines of um, he was tied to connections to my mother. And that was about the basis of the phone call. I remember my dad asking if this was a prank or what's going on. Remember going upstairs asking, so what was the phone call? And then going immediately downstairs and then doing an internet search and then pulling up the news article to verify he really was arrested. Then the rest went into 
us just doing internet searches and getting following the media coverage and then going through baby pictures and kind of seeing that they match the missing baby pictures that were listed online. And within a couple of days, the FBI was out. And that's when they started doing like the fingerprints, footprints, DNA to match to see if I was that baby. And of course you were. But, and we'll get to John Robinson and and the letters, which are very compelling in a moment. But they thought your dad, his brother, was in on it, didn't they? I mean, they put him through the ringer. They weren't sure at the time what the connection was, but they did investigate him hard, tied through everything. I think one of the things that benefited my adoptive parents was the fact that everything was documented. They had even kept the um, copy of the check that was written, and I believe the check was written to John's business, the Equitu, at the time for the adoption. They even had, in my baby book, my adopted mom had just written, like, detail for detail the day of going to their house to pick me up. And then through all that information, plus whatever they had dug up doing their own investigations, they had completely cleared them as being another victim of John's that had fallen for another con. Now, the authorities cleared them, but everybody think about the Internet and the trolls and this information out there. Can you only imagine the living hell that Heather and her family went through? When three women disappear in Santa Ana, California, without a trace, it takes one bold, unwavering detective to seek justice. Detective Julissa Trapp has always wanted to be a cop, but she's the only woman on an otherwise all-male homicide squad. But uh, she does her job in ways that you and I would probably say is unconventional, perhaps. There's a brand new podcast from Wondery and the Los Angeles Times. In this podcast, Detective Trapp takes you right into the life of a cop who conducts herself relentlessly. Hosted by award-winning journalist Chris Gofford, Detective Trapp is the story of a detective who fights through her many personal battles. And, of course, she has to deal with society's indifference to murder, especially three missing women. She goes through all of this and is still able to bring a killer to justice. Trapp's strongest resource for catching a dangerous criminal? Personal experience. While listening, make sure to subscribe to Detective Trap on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to be listening right now. You can also find the link in the episode notes. My adopted father was involved. That usually came more from people online commenting or putting in their perspective. That's where I've gotten the comments that they were physically there when they murdered Lisa. And I I also kind of defend the fact that there's just so much information to the case. And it's so many complicated levels to it with multiple players. I understand why people get confused. And if you look at it in the context of this family wanted to adopt a child, couldn't have a kid, and then one night his brother called, hey, I have a baby for you, that's very suspicious. That just happened to not be the circumstances. By the time that they got the phone call in January, that was a pleasant surprise because they were under the impression that they were going to have a child adopted within December. So once again, even through John, now having had been on waiting list after waiting list through adoption agencies, falling through through other places because they didn't have enough funds to even be put on a waiting list 
even going through a private adoption with John fell through until January. Right. So for everybody thinking, oh, out of the blue, yeah, I'd be suspicious. No, it wasn't that out of the blue. It was a surprise, like you said, but they've been working on uh, other areas to, to adopt a baby, and even through John, and quote, adoption, quote, fell through, unquote. Uh, probably, probably, maybe he was trying to kill Lisa earlier. I, I don't know, but... That or he gave himself a deadline that he wasn't able to follow through with. He didn't find someone. But prior to Lisa being murdered in January, he had already been pretending and creating this false adoption scenario for his brother and sister-in-law for a good six months to a year to me being captured or kidnapped. Everyone, we're talking with Heather Heather Robinson. And uh, if you're a true crime aficionado, you know who John Robinson is. He is a serial killer who met women through a Lonely Hearts uh, sadomasochistic master-slave type website. He met a lot of his victims through that. He also reached out to young women who were in trouble, who were pregnant or who had young children and said, I can help you. So, of course, he had women coming to him all the time, young women. And he loved women that were somehow getting some sort of government check or some sort of, of payment from somebody. And he would just continue to collect those checks. Several of his, many of his victims were actually found in barrels. But Heather's mom, and Heather's mom was murdered by John, and Heather was four months old. John took Heather and adopted Heather out to his brother and his wife. A lot of his victims, John's victims, were found in barrels. Heather's mother, Lisa, has never been found. And that's where we're at right now. Heather learned about this horrible fate of her mother when she was 15 by picking up a phone call and hearing the information being told to her parents, her adoptive parents. So... You met your adopted parents' family, and uh, unfortunately, that could be a whole other podcast, but you have come cl- be, have become close to some of them, and it's so sad to me because what happened as well is John's family, your cousins, haven't really been that supportive. I, I just keep thinking, oh, my God, if that was me— I would be like, I'm so sorry, my father is such a monster, and on and on and on. But they haven't really had, hasn't been that great for you with John's family. Is that correct, or am I way off base? That's correct. They do not want any of this coming back out to light. I believe that they were under the impression that me coming forward would result in me giving out information such as where they're staying, live, pictures of their children, which was nowhere near the truth of the situation or something that anybody who was tied to the project, especially with ABC, was interested in doing. But I, their their thoughts, their opinions, and where they stand with their father is on them. Exactly. I've kind of reached my point of I can't. As much as I want to be the voice for all Robinsons and argue and defend situations, I completely tap out when it comes to John's kids and immediate family. Well, you have to uh, realize that you have to just say enough. You can't change their mind. How they can uh, somehow make you the bad person in this is just appalling to me. But, of course, you've never revealed their names, where they're living, no pictures, nothing. You have done nothing improper. So now you had to live with the fact 
that this horrible story came out, and you were 15. How did it affect you in school and with your friends? I didn't go to school, and I didn't have friends. I was homeschooled for the final three years of high school. It took about all that time for everything to finally settle out. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I was out of high school, I was back in the court getting legally adopted. Then the other legal proceedings against John and so forth. I didn't kind of, things didn't mellow out for me with the John end until about 24, 25. So from 15 to 25 was just kind of living in that world. But you had post-traumatic stress disorder, like I mentioned earlier, which is absolutely understandable. And I'm assuming you still have it today. Tell us about that. How did you recognize this? What happened to you? Where did you go after the age of 25? After 25, I um, was trying to learn how to live, function, and survive from 18 to 25. I was on disability for the PTSD. I also have bipolar. And that became very trying throughout everything, trying to balance that itself. By 28, I was working full-time. I had gone from barely making minimum wage to I worked myself up into retail management. In the place I was working, I happened to meet my husband, and it was kind of love at first sight. First time I saw him, I just, I knew. We became instant friends, and then we got married very quickly, and on my wedding night, I conceived my son. So I was told medically I would never have. And then from then until now was balancing the postpartum depression, the PTSD. I also have endometriosis, ovarian cyst syndrome, and I do get chronic pain and fatigue that can cause some issues. But between my adopted parents and my husband, they all kind of work with me and help me that I can get through and function. that I can do everything I need to do. And you have that lovely little boy, obviously, who was meant to be. So there are some very good things that have happened to you in spite of uh, the horrible, horrible death of your mother. Absolutely. Let's talk about you, and I call it coming out. And I, I knew when you said you were going to come out, it would cause incredible interest. What made you decide to finally step out into the spotlight and say, I'm the baby, it's me? It was a multitude of different things. I had always entertained the thought of coming forward and speaking publicly, but with certain biological family members, especially Lisa's mom, just something, it, it, I just, I couldn't, it didn't feel right. I've always stated that had I come forward and made my grandma relive a lot of the things she was going to have to, it would have killed her. And then having come forward after the fact and then learning the new things I did about my grandma, oh, absolutely it would have. Another thing that kind of drove it was that it never went away. It seems other people kind of moved on with their lives, but for myself and other victims that I have talked to tied to this, we've never stopped living it. it it's constantly with us. We try to just go about our day-to-day -day lives like it didn't happen, but it just doesn't work that way. And I can't ignore that alert on my phone that there's a new YouTube video, especially once a YouTube video about me, my mother, and my circumstances by a YouTuber I happen to subscribe to. And that was happening time and time again. News articles were still going. And I just wanted, if it was going to be talked about, I would at least like it to be more coherent narrative 
and more factual and straight to the point. Not kind of jumped all over the place like I've seen information or a lot of misinformation that wasn't even correct that's still out there as though it was valid to the case. That, that's uh, understandable. I can understand why. I think we can all understand why you want to step out and say, okay, here's how it really happened. So now John has been convicted of not the death of your mother, but of uh, other uh, women whose bodies they found, and he is on death row. Where does the case stand with your mother? Wasn't he charged with her murder, too? He was. There was a technicality to the case. In order to have so many capital offenses, they had to have so many victims. And to tie one of the death penalty cases, they had listed my mother to it, but then also had a separate charge of him convicted of murdering her, which recently, back I think in 2015, they dropped the individual charge because then he was going to be convicted of murdering my mother twice. So he still stands convicted of her murder, just not that one individual charge. It's, it's clumped together in a capital offense. And her body has never been found. Have you tried to talk to him? No. I've tried the different outlets. I've reached out to his defense team. It's kind of gone silent right now. I was going through an advocacy program that was tied to the jail he was at that would kind of be the mediator to accommodate this type of communication that's kind of gone radio silent. And now I'm looking at my only other option is writing him a letter, but I have not done that yet. I'm also kind of waiting to see how the investigation goes and what new information we come up with before I talk to him now. You mentioned the new investigation. Let's talk about that. New investigation, what does that include? You mentioned something about letters. You have uncovered new evidence. Please go into that because this is really the kind of the, the heart of the matter today. This is where you're going to get justice for your mother, we hope. But tell us about the new evidence and what's going on. The new evidence came to light probably like a month or so ago. It was actually the last day of filming with ABC about a week before they were planning to air. I had come into contact with an estranged family member who was very close to Lisa, raised Lisa most of her life that I was not aware of. When I came into contact with that person, we started talking. We stroke, struck up a relationship and were able to meet with the assistance of ABC during that visitation and going over everything and meeting each other. It was then relayed to my husband and I that they had reason to believe that Lisa might be alive. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, hold on. Uh, what did you do when you heard that, to quote Nancy Grace, that bombshell information? Did your heart just leap? Did you stop dead in your tracks? What did you do? And my first response was, what now? Because you knew it wasn't true. Yeah, I, I, I came to terms with and I know that Lisa's no longer with us. So it was just, my mind went to a lot of places, but none of them being, oh my God, my mother is alive. So let's go back to this. So somebody contacts you and says, we believe Lisa's alive. Please continue. And then I was like, okay, what, you know, what makes you think that? Which then they followed up with, well, we received a letter. Second, I heard we received a letter. I already knew, John, you don't have a victim. Remember everybody, right, every victim had to sign her name to a blank piece of paper. So. And there were countless victims that had, even after that they were murdered, they had holiday cards, letters sent throughout the year. He almost had like a daily plan or listing of 
whose family to send what letter to keep the elaborate facade of these women being alive still going. So we talked about the letters for a little bit, and then they admit they had them with, and then immediately looking at it, you just, you could tell, especially after looking at other evidence, that it was John. The question to it was, how could this person receive these letters because they were mailed to them in 2009 and 2010? John has been in jail since 2000. So somebody's still helping John Robinson keep up the facade, the cruel facade, that Lisa is alive. And not just Lisa, the elaborate went into extenuating details to try to create this narrative that not only was my mother alive, but so was Catherine and Paula, who were two other missing women from the 80s. Their remains have never been found. It was the most cliche, lifetime movie, sex in the city meets blow, where there's secret identities, they're traveling and helping drug kingpins uh, transfer drugs through airports. They're having dinner together in diners in Chicago. It was just ludicrous. They actually believed it. That's what's appalling to me. But So you find this letter, then what? Or they, you're given this letter, and so now what happens? Um, we immediately contacted Stephen Haynes and then turned it into the district attorney that's currently handling John's case and the appeals that he's doing, and then they sent it over to who's currently investigating it, and then any witnesses or people who have come forward with any type of information, we then forward over to the detectives so they can tell whatever information stories they have. Who's Stephen Haynes? Stephen Haynes was the probation officer who adamantly was looking for Lisa and myself back in the 80s, as well as trying to get other people to see the connections of John's crimes, that there was more there than people were acknowledging. And you become very close to him. And I had just seen him earlier that day for filming. So whenever I find a new John lead or something happens, that's usually my first phone call. You've been very close to him. You've become very close, and he has been a wonderful friend to you. Absolutely. And he's one person. He's amazing. Yeah, there's one person that we are are going to uh, have on soon on the podcast on Webster's Radio podcast. But let's go back to the current investigation. Never occurred to I probably most of us that John Robinson was still being investigated. So is he being investigated for new missing persons that perhaps he murdered? I don't want to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I don't want to say that it's John himself being investigated, but those letters definitely are. Okay. To find out who it was. It, it is my assumption in me saying that was John. There, there was just no way. Even looking at the signatures on the letter that were supposed to be my mom, they look exactly photocopied from the original letter that she had assigned back in 85. So let's assume that it really, truly, that, that the letters were from John. Who mailed them in 2010? Who would do that? Any thoughts? We have a couple theories. There's been a name or two that have been thrown out there from people who've come forward. At this time, I'm going to just allow the investigation to kind of go, because going into this even six months ago, never did I imagine I would find letters claiming my mother was alive. Exactly. I knew and I had a feeling that something wasn't right, and that's just something that most people involved with John, it always comes down to you just know, you just have a feeling. And you can't really get people to actively pursue something based on a feeling. 
Well, that's true. So at least finding those letters gave a lot of people comfort that were tied involved, that had a feeling that John was still active and doing things, even on death row. That comfort of, you were probably right, because it was no different than when he was in jail in general population. Wherever he is in jail, if he has access to people, he will eventually turn them. Yeah, I would like to find out who would, uh, I'm sure you would too, but would there be any charges, do you think, against this person if they find out who it is? That I don't know. I Honestly, I don't know what they could actually do with how long it would be. I'm all for accountability, and I would just be happy with names. Yes to know who it was involved. Was it someone on the inside? Was it someone on the outside? If they can't be prosecuted and they don't get any type of jail time or repercussions that way, it should at least be public knowledge and known that they assisted and did something like that. I agree. People should know that that person exists and that's the type of thing they would do for a serial killer. Sorry, my blood pressure just starts going up as soon as I start thinking about that. I can only imagine what you go through. Um, Heather, I want to thank you personally because I was reading at heavy.com, a great site for true crime information, by the way, everybody. And you thanked WebSleuths. And I, I was just like, that is so cool because we thank you for coming forward. And on behalf of WebSleuths, we'll do anything we can you can think of to assist you. So thank you for the shout out. That meant a lot. Absolutely. Thank you for what you guys do. And constantly pursuing forward with trying to find information on cold cases and missing people. Well, you know, when I say we, I mean the members and the moderators. They do the heavy lifting. They're the ones that that deserve all the credit, and they are really, really amazing. And, of course, they, they only want what's the best for you and what you want. What would be the happiest ending you could think of, logically, that could happen to you? I think with the circumstances attached, there's no such thing as a happy ending. I take comfort in just knowing I did something. I tried. I don't hold any false delusions that I'm going to find my mother's remains, bury her, and then 20 years of trauma and pain go away. I I know that. But being a mother, having a child, and then having people in my life that love me, I can't believe that something would happen to me right now, and there wouldn't be at least five people knocking down every door trying to find me. Well, that is a good feeling that you have that many people that care about you. And boy, that really does uh, really does help a lot of a troubled mind to know that people are out there that love you that much that would go to those, uh, those I'm getting a little emotional here, that would go to those levels to try and find you. And uh, I, I think that's fantastic. And it's something you certainly deserve. And uh, you're doing the same thing for your mother. Do you feel like you know her better now, or are there still many, many unanswered questions? I still have a lot of questions, but I understand more of who she was, what she came from, and how the circumstance happened that led her to where she was. Mm -hmm. Lisa was just one of many women who fell under unfortunate circumstances that made it very hard for her to do anything other than survive. So if anything from everything I learned, it's trying to make some sort of sense of all this madness and a reach a point in my life where I'm no longer just surviving and making it day to day. I can actually start to live and enjoy life. I just know outside of being a mother, I never really lived and enjoyed life. That was one of the things that was taken from me going through all of this. Oh, I'm so sorry. Know that you have 
a world of people behind you cheering you on and are so amazed at what you have accomplished so far. And you certainly haven't uh, stopped. You're going to continue. And you're just, uh, you're a fighter. And I think that comes from your mom, actually. So, Heather, give us the uh, Facebook page address again and any closing comments that you would like to add. The Facebook page is the Lisa Stacy Effect. It's kind of just my little safe haven and place where I post updates and usually memes. I comfort myself and others with humor. And my takeaway from all of this and last comments would be, whether it's tied to this case or any other case, don't ever discredit memories or things that you've experienced as not being tangible. If one thing that I've learned from the last six months of pursuing this, so many unanswered questions and possible motives have been discovered just based off of people who had unique circumstances or random memories that they thought meant absolutely nothing other than it just kind of left an impression on their mind, absolutely ended up being a credible enough tangible moment that was able to kind of put that puzzle piece that was missing in there to kind of fill that whole picture. So never give up and don't don't not think that you're capable of solving a mystery or giving information that could end up giving someone closure and justice. I just happened to pursue Lisa, Catherine, and Paula because that's my passion. That's who I want to get closure for and get proper justice. But there are hundreds and thousands of missing women, children, and men that need just as much effort and care. You are so right. Tiffany Stacy. that's what your mother named you. You go by Heather Tiffany Robinson today. Very, very wise words. Everybody can do something to help somebody, especially in a missing persons case. And uh, you can always come to websluice.com, jump on the discussion forum, and and, uh, read about what we're talking about. And that is the people that uh, still need help. And if you do know anything about John Robinson or Lisa Stacy, please go to Tiffany's webpage, or excuse me, Tiffany's, uh, please go to Heather's Facebook page and help her out. One more time, we'll end with that Facebook name. The Lisa Stacy effect. Heather, thank you so much. You're making a difference. I am very excited to see where you go with your life because you will continue to make a difference in people's lives. Thank you so much. Thank you. Heather, I'll be in touch. Thanks, my dear. You take care. Have a good one. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. What an amazing woman. Thank you, Heather. Okay, people. You do it. I do it. Everybody does it. I'm not talking about the hokey pokey. We're not going to turn ourselves around, and that's what it's all about. No. I'm talking about you hear something about somebody that's in trouble, and you think, well, I don't have any money, which is usually what the problem is. Somebody needs money. You think, there's nothing I can do, right? Wrong-o. Wrong-o. What you can do is this. If you really do want to help somebody and have it not take up very much of your time, but really make a difference, I can tell you exactly how to do that. Come to websluice.com, scroll down the front of the page, and you can find the missing. Thousands of cases in there. Then you can find the missing from 1960 to 1970 and 1970 to 1980. You can find all of that. Then you can see our cold cases. And you know what you can do? Many of those cases, although they have a discussion started about them, have very little discussion going on. Very little. So you know what? Go in there and type a word of encouragement to the family. Okay, now you're thinking I'm nuts. That's not going to do anything. And I am crazy, and I do need medication, but not for this. 
All right. Because let me tell you, I've lost count of how many times Websleuth has received an email that says, I was Googling my brother, sister, mother, father, friend, uh, neighbor who was murdered or who is missing. And the only thing I found was a discussion thread on Websleuth. And that has given me hope again. And that has made me realize that people still care about my loved one. Just a simple message from a stranger can really help people out there. And that means you can make a difference. Better yet, if you have more time, I would suggest coming on WebSleuth and finding a, a missing persons case or a cold case that doesn't have a lot of discussion, maybe adopting it, adopting the case, find out the latest, do updates, get people interested in it, put it on your Facebook page, just adopt the case and make it yours and get people interested in it. Because let me tell you, you hear all the time about these cases about little kids missing and, and other people missing and cold cases. There are thousands of others that get zero, zero publicity whatsoever. They deserve it. And I don't know why one case really picks up and another case doesn't. Well, I do kind of know, but that's a whole other story, whole other podcast. So pick a case that doesn't have anything on it other than a name and the uh, information about the case and just write a note to the families. And if you have more time, adopt the case and try and find out more and post about it and get interest in the case. You see, I don't pick the cases. I sit back and the members come in, they pick the cases and they do the work. They're amazing. And that's why you can do the same thing. So when I hear you say, oh, I wish I could help, but there's nothing I can do. I'm going to smack you upside the head and then remind you, you can come to WebSleuth, doesn't cost you anything, and just type a message of hope and a message saying you care, okay? Until we meet again, my darling true crime angels, Trisha Griffith saying so long, it's WebSleuth Radio Podcast, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye now. Don't forget, patreon.com if you want to support WebSleuth, five bucks a month, great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.